0: Hello and welcome to Inside Infrastructure, an inside look at the decisions and decision makers behind Australia's city shaping infrastructure. I'm Ilya Zak from PwC Australia and I'll be joined for the main portion of the show by my co-host Adrian Dwyer, Chief Executive of Infrastructure Partnerships Australia. Recently, Adrian and I sat down with the Deputy Chair of Infrastructure WA and Westport Task Force Chair Nicole Lockwood to discuss her reflections on the Infrastructure Advisory Board model and Infrastructure WA's forthcoming state infrastructure strategy, and the trends and chief drivers behind the freight system overhaul in WA. Nicole also shares her views on why major reform has become so difficult and what needs to be done to shift the dial in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. It was a great chat, so here it is. Nicole Lockwood.
1: So, Nicole Lockwood, welcome to Inside Infrastructure. Thank you. Now, maybe in the first instance, you could uh, introduce yourself to our listeners and let us know who you are and what you do. Well, obviously,
2: Nicole Lockwood. Um, I've been for the last almost three years chairing the Westport Task Force, which has been a, a sort of a long term planning exercise to look at the future of ports in WA. And I sort of hold a number of other infrastructure type roles. So, I chair the Freight Logistics Council in Western Australia. Um, I recently finished up on the board of IA after nearly 10 years and I'm the Deputy Chair of Infrastructure WA. So yeah I've had a bit of an eclectic career to get me to this point Um, but yeah really enjoying being part of the long-term planning process.
1: Let's have a bit of a chat about that career that's got you to where you are now because it has been in the research we've done probably a non-traditional career path to get to the Mm. um, I guess a, a sort of an executive chair type role you've been doing with Westport and then the more traditional NED type um, jobs in the other area. Maybe you could just take us back a few years and talk about that pathway to, to where you are now.
2: Yeah, sure. So, started out as a lawyer. I had a bit of a passion for the environment at the time, so kind of was thinking I'd end up in the environmental planning legal space. Uh, but as careers do, they take you in strange directions and ended up moving up to Karratha, um for my husband's role. Uh, with uh, He was with uh, Woodside at the time and and I was pregnant. So, you know, that, that's the one great thing of being female and having babies is you get the opportunity to stop for a minute and think about what you really want to do. And I'd been practising for about six years in a range of different parts of the law and really didn't like any of it, um, part, partly because I felt um, what I really loved was problem solving. And I think what the legal system's really good at is taking a problem away from someone and putting it into a new system and giving them an answer that they'd never even thought of and probably never really wanted. So uh, it was, I used to find it very frustrating um, being part of that that structure, but um, but the, the basics of what it's about, I think I still use today. So going to the Pilbara just gave me this amazing opportunity to take it back and really rethink what I was good at and what I enjoyed and and being up there at a time where, you know, it was sort of, it was in the thick of the boom, um, Pilbara Cities was birthed uh, and I ended up uh, running for mayor uh, because I was bored and wanted something to do.
1: I want to unpack that because um, <laughs> like there's, there's a big step between... Um, mm. I had some time during parental leave to think what i wanted to do to becoming mayor of a a frontier city in in, in wa um so, i mean i don't even know what question what question i should ask but how did you go from parental leave to mayor <laughs>
2: Um, well, when I started, so, so I had, had the baby, didn't sleep, when I eventually started to wake up again and decided I actually did want to work, um, I ended up going to the community legal centre in town and thought, right, I could probably just volunteer here to give them a bit of a hand and offered to do that. And within two weeks of starting, they had four offices across the Pilbara, all of their lawyers quit. Uh, so I was it. Right. So they said, would you like to run the community legal service? And I'm like, oh, that wasn't quite on the list. I was hoping for a little bit of part-time work around the baby, but yeah, okay. Um, so I did. And what, it hit, what hit me was the dysfunction of that part of the world uh, from a whole range of fronts. You know, you've got some of the you know, biggest um, projects going ahead, you know, multi-billion dollar projects, people getting paid a huge amount of money, and then people having nothing and you had, um, you know, families in town where, you know, the, the you know, the, the husband traditionally was employed by a resource company and the marriage would break down and then the wife couldn't leave town because um, the children were there and the, the court would require her to stay and there was no um, accommodation available in town. So it was, it was quite a bizarre place. And then we had lots of issues, obviously, in Aboriginal communities at the time. That was at the point where Robin was in the spotlight. Um, a lot of um, safety issues around housing. So it was a really strange and disturbing social setting and i sort of thought geez this can't be right you've got all this wealth and all this poverty in one place and and a system that's really ignored the pilbara Um, you know the state you know at that point to be honest it was just it was seen as a you know as a catalyst for royalties but that's about all certainly wasn't a place where people would want to go and live So I I kind of thought, right, well, you know, I do want to give back in some form and and thought, well, maybe, you know, being on council will give me a better understanding of how the place works. I had all these idealistic thoughts about how I could fix it. You know, my big crusade was let's get some more lawyers in town at the time. That was one of the platforms I ran on. Um, And I basically, I had no network. We'd only moved to town sort of six months before and um, kind of worked through, you know, the one I did, I had a mum's group and my husband was working obviously at Woodside and, And then I'd started meeting people through the the legal service and thought, oh, I'll give it a run. And I ran against five blokes in their 60s. That kind of helped because Mm. uh, I looked a little bit different and I looked like what a lot of other people look like in town, young people with a passion and a a willingness to try something different, come to town with a baby or young kids and, you know, willing to have an adventure. So I think that stood out and I I, I certainly took out all the votes um, and got a spot. So I thought, okay, well, that, that was fun. And um, I came home after my first night on, like we had like a, an, an orientation type thing, induction. And I said to my husband, I want to be the mayor. And he's like, oh, "For God's sakes, you've just you've just got in. Can you just settle it down?" And I'm like, "No, no, this place is. There's so much that could be done here. I'd love to do it." Anyway, I, the first year I learned a lot, and then thought, "Oh, what was I thinking? This is this is a nightmare, and it's enormous, and I can't do that." And then in the second year, went, "No, actually, I think I can." So I spent that kind of two first two years on council, learning the place and understanding how it worked, and then decided in the six months leading up to the next election that I'd I'd kind of put my hat up for for the mayor role and yeah got it
1: so how does that work i don't i don't my familiarity with local government is probably not what it should be so you you are a councillor and then you run separately to become um
2: different like yeah different local governments are different so in that local government um you you are on council as so you're elected as a councillor and then there's an internal vote for mayor so you basically nominate and um, and then there's a vote on the on the night, well, basically the week after the, the elections. So I had a four-year term, so I'd done two years of my four years. So I wasn't up for election at that point, but the, the current mayor was and I sort of just thought, right, I'll give this a go. You,
0: you would have been overseeing a pretty enormous uh, city building program and to some extent mm. during your time there it, in the early 2000s, is that? Yep. Um How how does that work in a town like Caratha, where you know a whole a whole mountain of the construction is done by the employers rather than the city? Um, Mm. What's how does that look, and how's it different from from other cities?
2: Well, I think it was really interesting in those first couple of years I was on council because I kind of needed to understand, well, how does a place like this even come to exist? And mm. it was a really, you know, it's a really pioneering type of environment. You kind of go there with a, with an appetite and a bit of money and you can pretty much do anything. It's It's quite exciting. And yeah. I think that still lives on even with the companies that are there now. So looking back, when Carratha particularly was established, it was actually a partnership between the local government that was a, it was a roads board at the time and the, the company. So the state the state agreements were brokered between, you know, what was a local community and the company coming in and, and largely the companies built the town. So the town was like, right, these are the things we need and Woodside and Rio and others came to the table and they built them all. So that was sort of at the beginning. Um, and when we launched Pilbara Cities, I spoke... So that the Premier came up and Don Volte was the CEO of Woodside at the time. And I spoke with them on the day about what the opportunity was. And the issue was that when these places were built, they were built for 40 years is what they thought the life of the, you know, the iron ore deposits were. So that was, that was it. It was sort of, okay, we'll build it and then we'll close it back down again, a bit like they did in the gold fields and other places. So, you know, we're well, we're 50, 60 years beyond that at the point I was there and nothing had been done. You know, the state had sort of gone off. That's right. We've got some people up there. We probably should do something, which is what the Pilbara Cities was all about. It was, you know, trying to create, you know, settlements in a place where this, this you know, this area of the country has got such enormous wealth. Why is it not more populated? Why do we not, um, you know, use it more? So that, that was what Pilbara Cities was about. And then being, so I was, the, I was the Mayor of Carrethra and then I was also the Chair of the Development Commission after that, the Pilbara Development Commission. And that was, you know, that's where a lot of all that infrastructure build happened. You know, multi-billions the state government spent um, catching up, really, and preparing for the future.
1: What's your proudest achievement from that time?
2: Well, if you go to Karatha now um, and you look at photos of it from the planning point that, that I started and what it is now, it it's totally transformed. So what, what I'm pleased about is that everything that we set in place in our um, planning documents and the, the projects we started, you know, 10, 12 years ago have all now been delivered. And the place is just, it's got all the bones it needs now to be able to grow. And, and for anyone that travels, you know, that part of the world is fairly uninviting. But it is a it's a very um, you know obviously physically it's been totally transformed. But it's got culture, it's got vibrancy. There's bars, there's restaurants, there's there's you know an arts scene that that wasn't there when I was there. So yeah, that's what the legacy.
1: I do, talk to infrastructure people and you know, people that do massive projects or um, you know roads, rail lines, what have you, and they often you ask them like, "What's the best thing about it?" They'd be like, "Oh, there was a." um there's a bike path we put in that that really made the difference or there's there's a you know a piece of cultural infrastructure or there was a um you know, an indigenous apprenticeship program i just find it really interesting that infrastructure people that do really big stuff the thing they the thing that really made the difference was like the cherry on top was the other thing they mm. did alongside it kind of sound mm. you you talk there about the vibrancy the culture mm. that there are bars and um mm. it's quite a, um I don't know if that's just something about infrastructure people or it's a... Mm.
0: I imagine you were able to do a fair bit for the Indigenous community there as well as a result? Look,
2: probably not as much as I would have hoped. Um, It was at a really interesting time, as I said, where a lot of spotlight on the region for all the wrong reasons. I remember having a lot of journalists ringing me wanting to talk about all the problems. And I said, no, I'm not really interested in having that discussion. Want to talk about what we can do differently and the solutions. A lot of money um, being, you know, from resource companies going into social initiatives. Um, But I think the last decade has, has brought out a different um, level of leadership and and stewardship of some of that locally, which I think has improved things a lot. When I was there, it was still very much, um, you know, really kind of grounded in that native title discussion, which is, is just the base of it. It's not really what the, the conversation needs to be about. So I think that was one of, one of my regrets for the time I was there That was that I couldn't do more in that space. And I think for me now, one of the things we're doing with Westport um, here is really using infrastructure as an enabler of economic development outcomes and social outcomes for Aboriginal people, which that's really exciting. And I don't think we got we got as far down that path up north as I would have liked. And now
1: you, you go from, um, from Mare in Caratha, I think, did you move back to Perth mm. after that? And so, then, um, then it ultimately Infrastructure run. Australia. What's yeah. The, what's so, so the bridge so there?
2: Yeah, well, IA happened because of being in the Pilbara. So uh, we actually had Infrastructure Australia come and visit um, when I was in the role and I think um, I think the people at the time were just stunned by what was going on there and the scale and the fact that it was such a big deal. And it was right, you know, the GFC really didn't hit the West until about five years later. And it certainly didn't hit it at the time it hit the East Coast. So I used to spend a lot of time on the East Coast. And all these, you know, depressed boardrooms, people going, oh, how are we going to survive? And we were just, you know, things were just happening in the Pilbara. So I think there was a real draw around that. And, and the other thing that was missing at IA at the time was a real understanding of the regions. So I joined the board then um, quite early on. And for me, it was an amazing opportunity to bring some of that thinking um, to a national context. A lot of people didn't even understand where the Pilbara was so, you yeah, there was a lot of conversations federally about well, what exactly is this and why is this important? So that sort of, that, that improved over time. So IA kind of became a constant for me right through my time in the Pilbara, then moving back to Perth and then going into the roles that I've got here. And I suppose the shift back uh, was a difficult one because I'd sort of created um, a bit of a name and a profile for myself around a role that I was going to leave behind. So I had to reposition and I came back and I worked for KPMG for nearly three years in their management consulting team, um, leading their government practice. And that gave me an opportunity, I suppose, to find my feet back in the city, um, largely still in the infrastructure space, um, and then decided to go out my own because there was a lot of opportunities that needed some leadership um, that that maybe the public service didn't have internally, but they were looking for people to do that. and, And that's what I've been able to do over the last five years.
0: Can we can we talk a little bit more about the time in in IA? Um, mm. You you know one of the originals, as as you as you mentioned, uh, there for ten years on the board. How have you seen the? Uh, I don't know if you if you're more comfortable dis- discussing it now maybe than when you were still there. But how have you seen the organization's role kind of change over that period? Because uh, it did mm. go through some pretty fundamental changes, mm. a couple of times I think in in that time.
2: Yeah, it did. Um, well it changed physically, the structure of it and how it uh, how it functioned within government um, changed. so it went from sort of more, I suppose an an aside almost to the department um, mm-hmm. to now an independent body. So that in itself was a big shift. I think some of the losses of that transition, the old model, the benefit of that, you did have um, a lot more people around the table from states uh, and the and the Commonwealth. And, and the benefit of that is that you, you get to bring people on the journey with you. Um, the difficulty of being totally independent is, you know, you are sitting out in your own a fair bit and it, you've really got to build those bridges back in. So whilst maybe, you know, the opportunities for reform weren't as aggressive because you're trying to work within a system, I think that blended model has a lot of merit. And that's certainly the model that we've got at Infrastructure Western Australia now, which I think is a good thing. Um, but in terms of the agenda of IA, that I think that shifted a lot too and it needed to because the original purpose obviously was set up to, to deliver the nation building fund which dried up pretty damn quick and for most people they went, oh, there's no money now so I'm not interested in talking to you anymore. Mm. So it was trying to create a reason for being that wasn't about a bucket and that's usually what all conversations with government are about. Is there a grant or is there a bucket? Then I'll have a chat with you. Not are we actually here to talk about a long-term uh, pipeline and, and partnership you
0: think, do you think they should have the bucket
2: haha <laughs> oh when i was around the board table we often used <laughs> to say that you know get, get, leave a little bit for discretionary and let everyone you know commit to the things that they're passionate about but there is a there is a large chunk and i'd, I'd go so far as to say 80 percent of the infrastructure spend that should be non-negotiable it is it is just the right answer in the in the next you know period of development i i, I definitely don't think it should be politicised. But but is that
0: applicable know, to the other i-bodies
2: I agree. I think everywhere that that's infrastructure, full stop. But but that's that doesn't necessarily fit with our political system. So you've got to be real in that. And then I think that's what IA has started to achieve over time is when you can create a narrative that's robust and um, you know and I suppose open enough, you actually can create that outcome with actually without having to hold the levers. So the transparency around the plan and the pipeline and the you know, project list. And then the public debate that goes on about have we got the right projects that that is actually more powerful than having a body make all the decisions because you've you've got you've got people to buy in. Now we're not there yet because there's still a lot of debate about the pipeline and what should happen when. But I think that
0: you mean IWA or we IA.
2: No, as in Infrastructure Australia on its journey, and I think the the state bodies have started to take on that that. The legacy, I think, that IA has been able to create. Remembering that when we started this process, states weren't even producing business cases at all. So we're going from great ideas at a cocktail party through to something that's actually documented now through something that's actually got some level of rigour. So that journey over probably a decade was significant in itself. Now we're talking about tweaking at the edges. Before we were talking about, can you even prove that this is the right idea? So I think that that in itself is, is a massive achievement. Now it's about what value can you add that's not just adding more layers to the system. What, what, you know, where, where is a body like IA or the state bodies, where are they really going to, to have impact?
1: So can I just um, just drill down a bit? Um, it strikes me that to some extent we ask the likes of Infrastructure Australia to do an impossible task. Mm. You know, we, we, we say um, there's no, you don't stand between a jurisdiction and a bucket of money but we're gonna ask you to mark their homework for which they get ostensibly no benefit for you marking their homework. Mm. Um, the best outcome is that the, um, your your homework gets a tick, and everybody says, well, it should get a tick because um, because it's your job. Uh, worst case scenario is um, IAs rolled out in front of the media to say they haven't done their homework properly, and then they get beaten up by the states.
0: Are referring you, to any specific examples there are you adrian no
1: specific examples at all just a generic conceptual <laughs> example idea um is it the case that we just we're just setting i uh, i'm specifically talking about the projects piece here rather than the policy piece which it does which mm. is more sort of Advisor. kind of being a, t- a totem mm. of uh, uh, of what's right and and forcing mm. governments back to the mean over time but on the project piece it's, it's quite adversarial you're essentially marking someone else's homework and, um, and sort of send, send them out to get a kicking um, mm. in the media and elsewhere, I are we asking them to do an impossible task?
2: I think the short answer is yes, and I think that's the struggle IA now has with state bodies in each jurisdiction to work out w- what, what's their role now. So when there was no state bodies, it was a different role. Now that we've got them everywhere pretty much, you know, and that's what we're grappling with at IWA now, how, what's the value add at each level? And and how do we make this? Um, you know, it, it almost becomes like a peer review then of a state um, process rather than a you know a one off. Mm. And I think the benefit is in the network that's been created both by IA and the and the bodies to really lift this to the next level and and use each other and and partner on on best practice. You know, th- th- this is now we're beyond you know getting the basics in place. We're now starting to think about. Now, particularly if you look at the assessment framework and its limitations around the regions and around projects that are not traditional, you know, transport projects that have high or can potentially have high BCRs, how do we make this more real for, for actually the complexity of the task? So I think, I think that's the reason IA needs to pivot because it can't keep doing the same thing. It's not actually going to get any accolades anymore from sitting there in that role. It needs to be more mature and more sophisticated in its approach.
0: But just to confirm, if you had to choose one, you know, if, if, if uh, you could choose any change for them that would address that issue, it would be that they decide what projects get money. Is that, would that be the most effective way for that to happen?
2: Look, I think, you know, the, the Commonwealth bucket's the biggest bucket. I do think if there was an ability to, to yeah, have a final vet on, on what happens when, that would be far, very more, far more powerful than the role it plays at the moment, definitely.
1: I guess the the natural evolution from talking about infrastructure Australia is to talk about infrastructure Western Australia, because you were, um, you're of course, deputy chair of the body, but you were heavily involved, I guess, in the advocacy for it to be established and the input into its structure, its role and the, the, the outputs that it is now in the midst of producing. So maybe you could just mm. talk to us perhaps with reference to the learning from the mm. Infrastructure Australia experience, actually how that manifested in, in a state body.
2: Yeah, great. And I think that was part of my frustration Uh, for the first seven years I was on IA was you know the the difficult reception I had at a state level so I'm there not there with a hat on for Western Australia but I'm certainly there trying to help Western Australia get its act together and very 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 difficult process because at the time you know our state government wasn't in a process of long-term planning and, and you know system thinking it was about some pretty big projects and, you know, they're good projects, but but it didn't really accord with the thinking that IA was putting out. So I was very passionate about creating something like IA at a state level and, and as you say, um, spent a fair bit of time, particularly in the lead-up to the last election, um, putting some papers together and trying to, to look at the other models too because I think having something in form is one part but it's actually how in substance what it does that matters and I have looked at some of the other examples around the country and I, I, I was concerned that the way they'd been set up maybe undermined their effectiveness so I thought you know making sure that one we had one of these and two it was set up properly was important otherwise best not to bother and we watched you know certainly watched iterations of other jurisdictions needing a couple of goes before they got it right and often it did it, it mattered what the mandate was it mattered the political um, clout that it had who it reported to and who led it so there were some really important pieces that we needed to get right Um, So for me now, looking at what IWA has become, it's a fairly pure model in the sense it's not not doing delivery, which I think is important to keep that out of these bodies. I know other jurisdictions have taken that. And usually, you know, when you're doing a good job, you get given more jobs to do. But I think that starts to blur the lines a bit of, of how they're going to be independent and transparent. I think IWA is really wrestling with this independence versus influence debate, which I think IA has struggled with probably more so since it's gone to a fully independent board. Um benefit, as I said, we've got the blend of directors general plus independent board members, which is helpful. And now, you know, the, the question of the audit and the plan, um, and then the, the list, sort of gone for a hybrid of that in WA where we're doing a state infrastructure strategy, which, which then will, will build into a list over time and an assessment function. Um, but the difference, and I wasn't sort of uh, was quite sure how it would feel to go from, from IA to IWA, the difference is that you've got a lot more levers. So at IA, mm-hmm. you are there overseeing, there's a couple of things that the federal government have control over, but largely what you're commentating on, you've got no control over. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's quite a difficult task, whereas at a state level... One, the legislation we've got here actually mandates that all state agencies come into the tent, hand over their documents, and then when the recommendations come out, change their plans to, to match. So the power in the legislation is significant, whereas you just have none of that nationally. And that's quite frustrating because you're trying to use you know, your influence for all it's worth and your public brand, really. Um, how, many, how much of the private sector and others can you get behind you to push an idea to get states to almost be guilted into doing it rather than doing it because they want to? So I think that's yeah. the benefit.
0: It's all I quite, say that, its all um, real, It's sorry, Adrian. It's all relatively new, I guess, uh, as you've described. And I think you're up to with that state infrastructure strategy. You've just released a discussion paper. Um, that's right. Can you talk us through uh, where the discussion paper fits into the, the the overall process of the strategy and what mm. what kind of key issues you've you've focused on there? Yeah,
2: sure. So we've you know again twenty years looking out um we've cut it by region and by sector we've got all the sectors at our disposal so like others we've got all the social infrastructure as well as economic which is a pretty powerful landscape to look at um the, the biggest challenge we have in western australia is the regions uh, we've got this very very consolidated population base in perth largely even the southwest is not overly populated and and it's a wicked problem you know if i reflect on my time in the pilbara you know we had a great um, vision, we had an amazing opportunity economically, jobs, all the rest of it. Do you think you could get people to move there? No. Nah. You know, they'd wanted a FIFO before they'd move there. So, you know, there's this this issue of we haven't done what, uh, what Queensland has done in terms of lots of population bases, you know, quite large ones um, up the coast. We've got these tiny little dots all over the state. And from an mm. infrastructure point of view, it is very, very difficult. And going forward, is that the answer? And that's one of the big things we've got to come to grips with um for us water is another massive one you know we've got a very critical problem with drying climate we use a lot of groundwater what are the long-term impacts of that so where we're trying to take this strategy is really trying to catalyze um what what are the enablers for long-term growth not not what's all the million projects we could do but what are those sort of spines of of infrastructure that are going to mean um, so telecommunications is another massive one, and if you look at COVID and what we've learnt, you know, huge pivot on both health and education around technology. Biggest issue for us is is the quality of our telecommunications across the state. So, um, interesting time to be having the discussion because we drafted the discussion paper pre-COVID, uh, then kind of reflected on it through COVID and went, uh, actually, nothing much has changed except we've just turned up the dial. And in fact, when we talked about resilience, we weren't thinking pandemic, so we probably should add that. But pandemic is resilience everywhere, which is kind of interesting because normally we think about point source impact rather than, you know, universal impact. So that's been quite interesting. And I think too now we've been out on the road having sessions with a range of different stakeholders and people are excited because we're talking long term again, we're out of the minutiae of the day-to-day of reactivity of covid and I think they're realising we've got to think differently, and we might not get this opportunity again. So there's been it's been very receptive.
0: But has it been mostly? Um, uh, it, it sounds like you're f- focusing on the projects that can en- that can enable uh, sort of the economic resilience of some of the regional areas. Have you will does the strategy also look at uh, non-capital uh, reforms or interventions that might that might help a- along that way as well?
2: Yeah, so our legislation is very broad, which is helpful. So we can look at policy and regulatory levers as well. Um, So, again, coming back to um, technology, you know, there's an opportunity there really to rethink how we deliver services. Um, Similarly, in water and power, you know, there's some commentary needed about the the market we've got in Western Australia and is that working or not? Is that Mm. actually stimulating the right level of investment? Is it actually helping with behaviour change or not? um there's a whole area around waste again you know what are we doing what are we what, what targets are we setting that are that stimulating investment or not so there's quite a lot for wa that's actually more around the context rather than the infrastructure itself um and i think you know any previews, we're pretty Nicole? keen to go there sorry
0: any previews of what's going to what's going to make it into the strategy any big reforms um,
2: not yet, because we're literally just in the throes of, you know, working them through. Um, but, you know, technology and, and disruption and automation and all these things, you know, how do we totally look at our, our, our networks differently? You know, what are the policy levers we can use there around congestion that we've watched through COVID? We've suddenly just changed our whole congestion modelling because suddenly people don't go to work at the same time or school at the same time. So, you know, we've just shown ourselves we can do it. Uh, everyone thought it was impossible. You know, I, I don't know what the appetite will be, but we'll certainly be putting it out there.
1: Um, I just want to um, step back just briefly and offer a comment on a question Ilya asked earlier and get your views on my comment. Uh, Ilya said about the eye bodies was the, was the answer to giving them some degree of funding power or uh, at least a negative funding um, power. And my reflection on that would be: we would be helping Infrastructure Australia, for instance, to do its job if we moderated that independence piece and, and went back to having um, a couple of influential um, secretaries of departments on the IA board, so that it had an umbilical cord back to camera, that it had, um, it, it knew, it had an insight into government's priorities, but it also had an advocate for the role that, that, that um, at least independence of thought, if not independence of structure, can mm. um, can help the politicians. So my answer to Ilya's question is, I, I think it's impossible. I don't think that we will ever, um, or I think it's highly unlikely we'll see our political leaders cede power for funding to mm. um, bureaucrats. And I actually don't think that's a particularly welcome outcome. I think we should, you know, there should be people that, that face um the electorate every few years do you do you think that that would that kind of model where you had a um a a moderation of independence in favor of more influence would help these bodies more to be more influential and, and therefore have net better outcomes
2: Totally. And I think that's why, for that reason, the board structure is critical, because having the connection in, whether it's even secondees into the organisation so that you've got the conversation happening and you're working through the barriers as they emerge, because there are reasons why people or organisations resist things. And it's understanding what they are, not just steamrollering through but the other thing that the IWA legislation has that I'm not sure others have is basically what happens is strategy gets developed and then recommendations get put to government. The government's got a period of time, 60 or 90 days, they've table it and then they've got to come back with their response. And then they've got to develop a 10-year infrastructure plan. So at the moment we've only got a four-year forward estimates period that people can see. This will take it out to 10. And then every agency has to go and change their capital works programs to match that 10-year program. So in a way, it's creating that without IWA needing to to dictate it. Mm. But by embedding the system, the rest of the bureaucracy and, and the planning process folds in around it. And I think that is really powerful.
1: And the other thing that came up in conversation was water. And it, you were on the Water Court board for a period of time, is yep. that right?
2: I am still at the moment, yep.
1: Striking thing here happened this week is that Warragamba Dam is full. Warragamba mm. Dam spilled earlier this week after having been um, less than half full um, twelve months ago, and big rains in the sort of wow. late summer period, and 100% full. And Sydney's total storage is now, at, I think, 98, 99% full. Um, the, the drought didn't break. The Millennium drought drought didn't even break over in the west. Um, and, and you're on two desal plants. Yep. Now running at full tilt, and, and talk about yep. expansions.
2: With two, um, two in the planning. Yep. Is
1: it, it, uh, the presumably the the. The assumption is that the drought will never break in the west. And, and
2: well, so so the strategy is um, basically cl- well climate independent. So it, it's it's no reliance on dams. So a number of our dams are actually used to store desal water. Um, hmm. The amount of runoff that we get. Um, by the time you get a decent rain and that soaks in and then you get runoff, you know, you, you get very little. And if you, or you just look at the trend lines, it's it's frightening in terms of the downward trend of what, what dams are providing. Um, so we are blessed with aquifers, but the long-term, econo- uh, the long-term environmental impact of that is still being understood, and we've certainly seen it in the short to medium term. So there, there'll be a gradual pullback um, from the regulatory agency around water licensing because of managing that impact. So, you know, the, the big challenge for Western Australia now is how do we look at the whole water cycle? So thinking of water as a single-use resource is very, very yesterday thinking. And with other parts of the world, clearly it's recycled and recycled again. And, you know, there's lots of stories about what the Thames is and other parts of mm. Europe. But, you know, that's where we need to go. And we've got technology already now that's taking our wastewater, it's treating it and it's putting it back in the aquifer. So it's one step less than potable. Um, that seems people are comfortable with that. It's going back in the ground and coming back up again. We need to retreat it because it's got a few other contaminants, but we're there. All we need to do is plug it back into the pipe and suddenly you've got the closed system. So it's all about um, the community conversation and it's about people getting comfortable with the idea that this is the way we need to use our water. Like we use a lot of other resources now, multiple times.
0: Is is this going to cost more money, less money? Is 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 it going to come from the user or is it going to come from... Uh, the taxpayer
2: well you know we're already on desal and desal's not cheap so you know when you've shifted the whole economic picture you know we're not the the part of the problem with water is it's not seen as a resource it's not Mm -hmm. like mining where you pay royalties for it if we started putting a dollar figure on water then hey this is really cheap so that's our issue and even the water licensing for agriculture there's a whole question there and the whole country needs to have the conversation but we've had to have it first just because of where we sit in the in the climate picture um. So I don't think I think innovation can mean it's not any more expensive. Um, in fact, we're reusing a waste product. It should actually, in time, be more efficient. Can I ask one this.
0: other one other thing about the? Sorry, just to the discussion paper. Um, mm. It's been a lot because you mentioned that you guys have done a lot of a lot of thinking about uh, what COVID will do uh, mm-hmm. to the to the strategy. And you know all the states that have done equivalent strategies are, are bringing forward a, a mountain of expenditure uh, as a stimulus measure. Um, do you think that this? Do you think that there's any risk that uh, well, a is WA going to do the same thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, is that part of the strategy to bring forward some of that expenditure? And b is uh, is bringing it forward? Is bringing all that expenditure forward a sustainable? Uh, thing to mm-hmm. do, uh, or is? Are there other things that um, that can be looked at as well as part of the strategy? Maybe you know, mm-hmm. using the urgency of the situation today to to look at some of the other changes that that need to be yeah. made.
2: So, so look, we've had to be really clear um, with everyone in our network that we're not here to deal with COVID recovery. There's a, a separate part of government that's been established to do that, and there's you know, well and truly, um, the government's on a trail at the moment, announcing a whole range of initiatives. I think it's five point five billion they've put towards. Uh, recovery initiatives, and they're largely in the sort of um, one to three year timeframe. So for us, with a twenty year strategy, it's important, but it's actually not material because right. the long term, you know, is a, is a lot different than that. But what is important is what what has changed for us um, and our assumptions that mean, we, you know, there's a new opportunity or there's a different challenge. And with all this, um, you know, bringing forward of, of new projects, what pathways that now put us on? So we're just about to do a range of scenario planning about some different futures and, and looking at, okay, well, we've, given we've got the ability to bring all of the current government planning to the table and actually map it, what I know will be true is there will be a, a whole heap of it that's going to actually conflict with other parts and there will be big gaps because no one's actually ever looked at it as a whole before. So this is our opportunity to say, well, we thought the planning frameworks and everything we're doing said we're going to end here. Actually, when we put the pieces of the puzzle together, we're actually over here. Um... Where do we want to go? Well, actually, probably over here. So what, what do we need to do now, maybe in the next five years, to turn the dial and take us in a different direction? And I think one of the opportunities um, in terms of built form and urban environment is what does a modern COVID-proof, pandemic-proof city look like? And one of the things Perth has the opportunity to do, we haven't gone down the Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane path yet, uh, we're trying to and we're getting there from population perspective. What's a different way of building a city with density but without all of the risk that's coming with, you know, a lot of high-rise and, and very close proximity living? And could we could we actually be, um, you know, the, the next evolution of what urban development looks like and what is the infrastructure solution to, to connect that?
0: It doesn't sound like there's much that IWA is taking on a, a role of how to how to pay for what is going to be an enormous expansion of, of uh, infrastructure delivery. Do, do you, is that Have I understood that correctly or is that it's just not in your remit?
2: Uh, well, it is in the sense that there's a, a section of our legislation that talks to deliverability. So we need to have a mind to the cost impact and also the way things can be funded. So we won't be dictating to government that this is the, this is what they should do and this is how, but if we come up with a, a wish list of strategies and ideas that's never going to be achievable, then no that won't meet, meet mm. the task. So So we do very much need to think about what's what's achievable.
1: Let's move on to probably the job that's keeping you the biggest at the moment, mm. in addition to all the others is the the Westport Task Force. And um, maybe just a, a, an open question, really, What what is the Westport Task Force? What have you done? What's the journey to, to where you are today and and the recent mm. announcement?
2: Yeah, so we were set up um, almost three years ago now, and it was the first time. So the state government has attempted in various forms port planning. We, we've mapped eight different times they've done this, and they've got to a point in the process and they've never actually made a decision to move forward. So we were determined not to be the ninth dot point on the list of, of exercises that never went anywhere. Um, the difference with Westport to past processes is twofold. One is it's the first time they've ever allowed the whole system to be analysed in one step. So our mandate was port, road, rail and intermodal land or other logistics land.
1: And what's the, what's the problem you're trying to solve?
2: So, the problem is our our major port at Fremantle is based in the centre of like physically the centre of the city. Um, it's largely now being um, being squeezed out by urban encroachment and and general traffic. and it has a, a shelf life in terms of the, the birth structures and the port itself uh, that needs to be re, need to need to consider whether you would invest again to basically rebuild. Um, those facilities they're over 100 years old or or do you look at something new
0: is that is that a natural constraint there or is that as a result of the urban development because i've been there yeah that it's a beautiful gentrified area that's right next to the port but Mm. was that of as in is that a failure of planning that's that's resulted in that or was it always going to reach capacity sort of where where it's at now
2: well, I think um, it's that question of, you know, when something was planned 100 years ago to be a, you know, a sailing ship port at the mouth of a yep. river, was that ever supposed to take the scale of what we we're after? And, and my argument would be no, you don't try and evolve that forever. It serves a purpose for a time and then you need mm. to look to something different. So I think it's it served its purpose beautifully and, as you say, it's created all that atmosphere and whatever. But But if we are serious about long-term population growth, the scale of the task and the network that connects it will never support it so it's just always been a question of when and unlike victoria that's had you know a blue and a and a red port option we've always had one location really that everyone said yeah we think that's the right spot still contentious but it's more been a question of well well, when do we get on with it so we got given it's it's more
1: analogous actually to um to to sydney airport sydney airport because you had this you know everybody agreed um Everybody's in the know agreed that Badger's Creek w- would be the next airport. It was mm. um, the corridor that the site was preserved. And then there was 30, 40, 50 years of pontification about mm. ruling out other options that were never viable. Um, mm. and, and then ultimately decided, it strikes me it's quite similar to that with the, the, mm. the port that you know, the current port it is, is going to be full. And actually there's a few different scenarios, but there's only one place that the new
0: port can be. So where are you at in the yeah. 30, 40, 50 year debate? Where are you up to?
2: <laughs> well, well, we've had that too. we probably had 50 years of the same. Um, the difference here is the corridors aren't protected. So that's yeah. sort of step one. And we, you know, the work we've just done and you're mindful of the fact that it was done pre-COVID and, and some of the assumptions now need to be tested. But at the, out, at the outside, you know, we know that big ships are coming and we're saying maybe mid-2040s they're going to be problematic for Fremantle and around the same time Fremantle needs to be rebuilt and somewhere between the mid-2030s and then we're going to have issues with the network. So we're sort of saying we've got 10 to 15 years probably of time to get ready and get, get prepared for a new site uh, but the work we've just announced last week basically says Newport in Kwinana new freight corridor that connects directly from the port gate through to another major connector at tonkin highway um and um yeah uh, land and rail and others to support it
0: and what happens at Uh, Fremantle?
2: uh well there's so so that we're at a point now where there's two transition options one is um basically a shared port option for a period and then a full transition or a single stage step um the market's sort of starting to say look you don't don't share it you just move the thing when you're ready to move it um we initially had a shared port indefinitely as there is from an economic point of view and that definitely didn't work so then the question is well you know you look at that site and what it offers it's prime land it's you know that very much is analogous to darling harbour for botany mm-hmm. you know if you think about that shift so we're just 20 30 years behind that um what that offers for Fremantle in terms of a whole new you know, lease on life is huge. It's a big site. It will take time and it needs to be done well. But I think, you know, massive opportunity.
0: Does the football team have to be renamed after that? <laughs>
2: well, they never put their site in Frio anyway. They're out at Coburn. so yeah.
0: <laughs> I am curious though, how you, I mean, you've mentioned some dates out into the middle of the century, effectively. Uh, can, you, can you give us what you maybe just concisely what you view as the chronology of uh, steps here when, mm. when you expect uh, one, the, something to be built, when you expect something to be closed and when you expect something to be shifted?
2: Yeah, sure. So again, as I said, the trade forecasting, um, you know, was basically projecting out a rate of about just over 3% growth. So on that basis and with the density targets we had in and around Fremantle, the congestion coming into the corridor um, both road and rail, actually, because we've got um, constraints on both, around the early 2030s was, was becoming problematic. So the work basically says get started now uh, and, and do your planning, your corridor protection, your environmental approvals, um, get all that moving and be ready to basically have a new facility operating by 2032. So that's, that's the first date, um, either as a single-step transition or as a shared port option. If there was a shared option, then Fremantle remains in place again, as we said, till probably the early 2040s, mid 2040s, when those other two triggers start to hit, or until the network issues connecting Fremantle become problematic. In the meantime, now given what COVID's done, and you know we've we've pretty much stayed flat year on year over the last two years, even with COVID. But if, if we either saw a flatlining or a dropping off, then all that means is that 2032 just pushes it out a bit.
0: Mm. So it,
2: it's largely dictated by um, by obviously growth of, of containers and growth of, of passenger traffic are the two catalysts in the short term to move the facility.
0: And what's the government to, to, said?
2: So they've supported our work in its entirety uh, and have committed $97 million to the next four years of planning and corridor protection and environmental approvals. My view is it doesn't matter when we need it, if it's 10, 15 or 20 years, if we don't get this corridor sorted now and if we don't start doing the early environmental work, it won't be an option. So and we don't really have a plan B. Um, Fremantle can be developed further out into the ocean, but all you do is you just continue to constrain. We did look at Bunbury as an alternative, but unfortunately there's a a layer of basalt at about 14 metres in the basin at Bunbury that would need to be blasted, and the dollars and the environmental impact in that is eye-watering. So it basically Mm -hmm. fell away as a large-scale terminal option.
1: And one of the... To draw out the analogy um, or the symmetry with things like um, uh, Western Sydney and, and there's other nodal infrastructure in... Uh, that are examples of this. We we talk about the piece of infrastructure, the port, the airport, whatever it may be, and then over time, it turns out that the supporting infrastructure costs many multiples mm-hmm. of the the All nodal uh, investment. Um, but you considered the whole piece, including the connections, in the work that you mm-hmm. did, and put that into the the, the economic modelling, etc. Can you just talk us through? That's right.
2: And I th- yeah and I think that's what threw people a bit at the short listing stage we had Fremantle as a long-term option in there and when you did the comparative numbers even at the first round of MCA so they were a bit high level we said about four billion for a port and road rail connections for a new port and about eight to keep Fremantle and that was for exactly that reason so not only have you got to rebuild the facility you've got to create very large scale upgrades to roads that are really not you know designed to have that scale of traffic um so and a, and a number of them because it's you know, it's one thing to just manage cars you know people say oh well it'll get solved anyway because the cars will need to be accommodated i'm like have you been to sydney lately no it doesn't get <laughs> solved anyway you know the, the, there's an economic driver in the freight that might make it get solved but without the freight you know congestion is congestion so what what our mandate was was let's work out how to get that out of there because if if your productivity is based on travel time and it actually doesn't really matter how many trucks you've got on there it's all about how many cars you've got around them you can't affect that without some serious policy levers so and and the other thing for us is yes you we can't tunnel the way you guys can on the east coast we don't have the right um geotech well you can but it's very difficult and it's quite we've had some pretty um yeah difficult processes so you know then you're like well if we can't tunnel it's all about corridors and no one's going to take out a row of houses either side of a major road right now so if that's not the option then what are we doing double stacking like you know and is that what you want in the middle of your urban environment it's also an amenity question
1: but more more broadly though WA has I would say of all jurisdictions probably got the most sophisticated strategic planning Mm. frameworks over time there has been corridor preservation there is a, a fund that sits within government with a levy that acquires strategic lands on a um a very forward thinking like decades ahead yep. type um basis and also a planning system i think because of the um because of the the reliance on the historical reliance on the mining economy a planning system that responds to triggers in population growth rather than dates mm. on a um, yeah. on a timeline right. so you know whilst you know, i think that westport's probably a good example of the continuation of that planning system but it shouldn't mm. beat ourselves up or, or beat wa up on you know the encroachment of the the, the existing port facility because it's um it's actually a pretty good mm. system when compared mm. to many others
2: but one thing one thing i would like to just Um, embellish a bit is um, I suppose the way that we've done the process that's the other thing that's been quite different so giving us a whole system to look at is the first part the second part's been letting everyone come to the table and have a conversation and I think the thing that governments forget particularly in the infrastructure particularly in the freight logistics space is that largely they don't operate or run a lot of the infrastructure so to go away in a dark room and plan a new plan and then say to industry, here it is, aren't you pleased that we've done this work for you? And then go, well, hang on a minute, you forgot this and what about that and this isn't going to work. So the, the, the commitment we gave at the beginning was let's get you to the table at the beginning, let's talk these things through, let's look at a huge list of options and throw, them, throw, throw some ideas around and then let's keep you informed the whole way so you don't feel like... So the announcement has actually been far calmer than I expected. There's, you know, With the exception of the unions who are concerned about changes to workforce... And there's some concerns about recreational fishing in the sound, which we're going to be working through in terms of the environmental process and the social impact. But other than that, people kind of get it. They're like, okay, well, you've explained why. There's only so many ways we can cut this And we're at a point now, actually, all the conversations I've had since the um, announcement have been so positive because people are like, fantastic, now we know what's happening next. Right. Can we do this now? Can we do that now? Now, this is my piece of the puzzle. And the industry has come to the table going, wonderful, we've been waiting for 15 years to invest. Now we know where we need to be. So I think that's the difference going forward with infrastructure. We can all quote projects that have kind of gone through the process and then been killed at the last minute because they haven't had a social licence. And that, that extends to industry. Um, doing this with the right people around the table, I think, is the critical part of how infrastructure needs to be dealt with going forward. Because this political mandate, leadership from on high, that doesn't cut it anymore. We the, the Politicians don't have that level of support now to, to push through these big arguments. We have to bring everybody with us.
0: Um, a, there was a bit of a segue there. That I think I've lost, but it's, you, you mentioned uh, you mentioned that uh, you can't just write a plan and, and, and hand it over and expect it to be done. Um, the, the you'll understand the segue in a sec. You were uh, involved, I guess, to some extent with the last version of the IA plan, which is being updated uh, as we speak. Uh, I mm-hmm. believe um, mountain of reforms in there that uh, that. uh, i guess they were accepted in 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 principle how do you feel um jurisdictions have gone in terms of implementing them not just not just the big ones not just road pricing things like that are there has there been much progress in terms of adopting what's what's in there and and what do you think needs to be done if there hasn't
1: nicole before you answer idiot worst segue ever that was like you changing gears in a manual car without a clutch but i'll let it pass
2: (laughs) um oh
1: it's a hard one
2: uh look my view is that reform is difficult to implement from that point of view in terms of i think the policy piece is important to educate and to to sort of explain the issue you know actually implementing those things requires partnerships with the relevant jurisdictions and it needs to be done mindful of a whole heap of contextual factors that they're dealing with in their own area. So I think two parts, one is, you know, the plan came out last year, you know, it hasn't probably had that much time yet to percolate prior to COVID hitting and, and um, you know, things going, sorry, the audit came out last year. Um, the plan and how it evolves I think is the important part because um making sure that it's practical and workable and, and tangible is, is, the, is the challenge. Again, coming at it from the whole of the system perspective from on high when you don't have the levers.
1: Now, Nicole, we're, um, we're quickly running out of time and we always ask mm. our guests one question, uh, which allows us to compare and contrast between different <laughs> people's views. And that is, um, what's your favourite sort of infrastructure and why?
2: And I have heard this question asked before, and I thought I must think about that in advance. (laughs) Um, Oh, that's a really hard one. And and I can I say it's not a form of infrastructure; it's actually a system. I think the thing for me is is how these pieces fit together, because on their own they're actually nothing, and one will enable another. And often, I often say a supply chain is only as strong as its weakest link. So it doesn't really matter what infrastructure you're talking about if the bits that sit either side of it are not working it it doesn't function so for me i just want to see more system thinking and i want to see us using these you know levers properly um because at the moment you know we're too much about thinking in silos and not enough about working together
0: it's almost as if it needs some kind of some kind of strategy some kind of state infrastructure strategy or something
2: (laughs) wouldn't that be a great (laughs) idea we should do one of those
0: i want you to get on top of that
2: (laughs) Okay, I'll put it on my to-do list.
0: (laughs) Please. (laughs) Well, it's
1: a great note to finish on. Um, Thank you very much for your insights and time and thank you for um, Claire Nicole Lockwood for coming on Inside Infrastructure.
2: Thank you both. It's been really enjoyable.
0: That's it for today. Please make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and leave us a rating or comment on LinkedIn. If you have any guest suggestions, then please feel free to send us those, either to Adrian or myself. We've certainly appreciated the messages we've been receiving so far. This episode was recorded and edited by Adam Stevens from Tag, PwC Australia's internal media agency. Research was conducted by Linda Bergerson, Brendan Pierce, and Michael Player.